0: It gets very like stoner logic if you think about it too hard actually like all these like (laughs) meal rituals that you like are like but why do we even do that man you know
1: welcome to writers who don't write i'm jeff and
2: i'm kyle this is writers who don't write welcome to writers who don't write and i know it's rough to lead off with this but i want to bring you guys up to speed as quickly as possible We've been thinking about a name change.
1: Kyle has been thinking about a name change and then somebody mentioned it to me, so I started <laughs> recently thinking about a name change.
2: Well no, listen, there's there's a point where you're writing and you're getting feedback on stuff and your tendency is to ignore everything that someone says that's negative about the thing, because, you know, you're Shakespeare. You're the best that's ever been. But there starts to...
1: You're not Shakespeare, man. (laughs) No,
2: I know this now. (laughs) But I didn't when I was starting out. But there reaches a point in the feedback process where, where people say the same thing so many times, it hits critical mass, and you have to stop discounting it. And that has now happened with the name of the podcast. I've been told by just the right number of people that the name makes no sense and doesn't actually talk about what the show is about so i thought why not involve our listeners the people who have been here since day one the day one fans who are out there in trying to come up with a better name for the show
1: keep in mind that five minutes ago i didn't know we were doing this Um, it's
2: it's a repeal (laughs) and replace it's not a repeal without any sort of uh solution as is popular these days we're looking for a replacement so if you've got ideas we want you to email us
1: yeah, and it's www.podcast at gmail.com. Uh, I'm actually super excited. Even if you don't have a name change idea, email us anyway. You know, Send it to www.podcast at gmail.com. Uh, we really just want to hear it from you guys. Um, but moving on to today's show, who do we got on the show today, Jeff? Well, before we do that, I just want to remind everybody, if you didn't listen to the last episode with Phil Cly, that we are now a bi weekly show. Uh, but this week we have Margaret Eby on the show. And
2: Margaret Eby is near and dear to my heart because she currently writes for a website called Extra Crispy, which if you didn't know, is focused on breakfast and the strange culture that we really don't talk about and often don't think about because it's so ingrained in our daily lives.
1: Yeah, it's super weird. Uh, When she first told us that that was kind of the theme of, of Extra Crispy, I was I was taken aback. Um, and then she got into it. And you heard like a very small snippet of that. Like, we, we've talked about breakfast for 20 minutes. Um, I promise you that it will change the way that you think of, of both this website and the meal that breaks your fast.
2: Uh, but rather than go on and on about it, we're gonna let Margaret tell you what
1: it's all about. But before we get there, I wanna tell you about uh, our sponsor this week, My Lit Box, which you can find at www.mylitbox.com. M-Y-L-I-T-B-O-X. Uh, My Lit Box is a monthly book subscription box It celebrates diversity in literature. Each month, you'll receive a box containing a newly released novel as well as one or two quality book-related items to make your reading experience all the more enjoyable. And the good news is that you're a fan of this podcast, you can get 10% off your first box by using the code WWDW upon checkout. Uh, you can find out more about the service at mylipbox.com.
2: Let's get to the show. Do, 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 do. I'm definitely leaving that in.
1: <laughs> so welcome, Margaret. Hi. Hey. Uh, and and you know, you and Kyle were just, I just walked in on you two arguing about uh, the romanticism of new York in the in the sleety winter.
0: right. I mean, I'm of the opinion that you have to like hold on to some of that like wide eyed belief in, like, the beauty and sparkle and magic of New York in order to live here among the, like, piles of, like, rats (laughs) eating rats and, like, garbage and whatever post-apocalyptic fire thing that's happening in the MTA. So even though it's a little delusional, I, like, have to entertain it in the back of my head.
2: I'm just over over the... I'm over the nameless purple puddles that never leave and the Um. freezing... uh just the freezing misery of walking to the subway in the morning when it's this cold out
0: yeah that's not good there there actually should be I think there needs to be a specific word for those kind of puddles that are camouflaged (laughs) as asphalt you know where you like (laughs) think that there's a bottom to them but if you step in them like your entire foot is soaked and your day is ruined and there's like no going
2: back for you you know I think they're transdimensional. I think they go to another place <laughs> where it's just always wet.
0: Just like the upside down of New York.
2: Yes. It's just like so, so the, the stranger
1: wet. thing puddles of New York. Those puddles yeah. exist
2: in all conditions. It makes no sense.
1: They never <laughs> freeze and they yeah, don't evaporate.
2: Yeah. They're like, they're
0: in July with like horrible things floating in them. They're just like to be avoided at all times.
1: It's true. <laughs> I don't know. I, like what you were saying before, though, about like the the magical like you know piece of it, though. I, I just left New York for a few months. I was out in San Francisco, and uh, you know, the second I got back, I just you, you feel it in you. And anybody who who never lived in New York, you know, I feel bad for for you know him or her because it's uh, it's just such a such an amazing experience that like you really. There's a lot of. Uh, Nobody really does it justice when they when they're talking about it. What a um, condescending. I don't feel
2: bad for you if you don't live in New York or have never done it. It's it's I do, terrible. I do. I don't. Know. I I think it's something like really special. It's beautiful and terrible at the same time. And the best I can say about it is that I can't wait until it's over.
0: Yeah, much like being t- twenty-two. You know. <laughs> just like all garbage and a little bit of champagne and you look back at it with stars in your eyes but at the time you know it's terrible
1: yeah well I, this is you know one thing you'll learn about us quickly if you listen to the show is that we're awful at segways uh so, <laughs> so you know I, I wanted to ask you uh because you you know margaret right now we're at extra crispy um right. which is you know a essentially a food blog um but like it's a food culture blog um which struck me is kind of interesting because uh, most of my experience reading your work, you've been, you know, a book critic, um, so or at least some kind of like cultural cr- critic. And I mean, food is definitely part of that, but it's not something that you immediately think of when you think of culture writing. Uh, and that led me to think about like all of the different things that I've seen you write: you know, music, books, food, television, culture. Uh, can you kind of like give us like an overview of of your past, and then also like why and how you you came to be a food writer?
0: Ah, uh, sure. So I um I I think I've always like gravitated towards um, both like the very highfalutin and the very lowfalutin um in terms of the journalism world. I don't know. I I started um. When I was just, like, out of school, I was a uh, stringer for the New York Post. That was my first job. Um, and I was actually, like, a copy kid, part of their, like, copy pool, which is this incredibly anachronistic job in which a editor yells copy at you and hands copies of things, and you pass out the proofs to the editors every night. And you basically wait for them to have, like, a quadruple homicide and be short-staffed and send you out reporting. <laughs> so... I did that um, and I took the shift from 6pm to 2am because that's when you were most likely to be sent out um, and did a lot of those like tabloid stories where I like went, there was a python in a laundromat in Queens. Um, I One time like Bob Saget was somewhere so they were like, go oh, see if Bob Saget will talk to you and he did and he was very nice to me. Um, but all those like weird like tiny, you know, inch long stories at the bottom of the columns um, at the post is where I started um, and so I was a news reporter for a while I worked for the post and the daily news as my kind of full-time gigs and at the same time, I was just kind of always, like, writing about books wherever I could find a place that would let me write about books. Um, I did a lot of writing for the Paris Review Daily, who were incredibly wonderful to me and let me write about, like, ghost stories from Alabama and going to Eudora Welty's house. Um, and then uh, from the Daily News, I moved to Brooklyn Magazine and what used to be the L Magazine, Reston in paper rest in
1: peace Um, um, rest in piles
0: right rest in piles though sometimes if you walk around brooklyn you can still find those like orange kiosks where they used to give out free the l magazines and they like sort of break my heart Um, you know
1: you know what a cool story would be is is what's in those kiosks now
0: horrors just (laughs) really bad things i'm sure
1: (laughs) some sort of puddle
0: yeah, exactly. Like, there's no delight to be had if you open, a like, a kiosk. You're like, oh, it's a rat family living there. How appropriate.
1: <laughs> if if we were a more popular podcast than we are, we would just be getting, like, you know, people sending us pictures of empty kiosks all over Twitter.
0: Man, I, there's something about a haunted kiosk, though. Someone should do a roundup. I don't know.
1: <laughs> well, I think that someone is you.
0: Yeah, probably. It's me. Yeah.
1: Uh- <laughs> I, I mean, maybe, maybe one of us, but... Uh, I mean, you're clearly the better writer in the in the group.
0: So. Well, I I know where the kiosks are more to <laughs> <right>. me. Um, <laughs> right? Yeah. I so I worked there as an associate editor, doing culture stuff, doing weird Brooklyn stories. Um, they were they were like very good about just kind of uh, letting me like write about I don't know. Elvis impersonators and like whatever odd things were happening around Brooklyn, um, that day. And I also got to write a lot about books there. Um, at the daily news, I had like, uh, taken over the reins of their like book blog, um, as an editor kind of as a side gig while I was a reporter, which was an insane thing to do because it like, didn't pay me any extra money and did add like like another half to my workload, but it was really great. And I got to like work with a lot of people and, you know, avalanches of books to read and write about all the time. Um, so that was great. And I continued that a little bit at Brooklyn. Um, and then I left, I'm sorry. I have so many jobs, so many jobs. Y'all. <laughs> um, from Brooklyn, I went to hello giggles as a features editor. And then I landed at extra crispy, um, Basically because uh, Hello Giggles got sold to Time Inc. And the bosses that I loved um, were, they left and I was sort of poking around Time Inc. And they had this like opportunity for a culture editor at a new breakfast website. Which at first I was like, that is impossibly niche. There's no way anyone will do that. Like that's definitely not something I want to do. And the more I thought about it, I was like, no, like, breakfast is really a weird meal. Like, it's a weird meal that no one talks about how intimate it is and how, like, unfriendly a breakfast can be and, like, how many weird proclivities there are around breakfast. Um, and I, so I, I like, uh, uh, talked to the editorial director of this wing of Time, Inc., um, who is, her name is Meredith Turrets and she used to be the book editor at Bustle, and she's wonderful. Um, and I talked to her about the position, and the more I talked to her, the more I realized that I could, like, turn this into this um, cool spot on the internet where food and culture writing kind of came together in a way that I hadn't seen them, but I really wanted to see them. Because I, I you have this sense in food writing that it's like very rarefied, like it's all savour and and food and wine, they do excellent things, but I always found them like extremely intimidating, like I was never, they were aspirational kind of glossy media, it wasn't ever talking about the way people actually interact and eat, and like the weird social conundrums and cultural things.
1: Can you give Mm -hmm. us a couple examples of what you're talking about, because that's fascinating to me. and I've, and you're right. I up until this moment, have never thought about it that way.
0: Sure. I mean, some of the pieces that I'm like proudest of publishing and editing up on um, extra Crispy, I think are good examples of that. Um we had the writer John Birdsall, who is just brilliant, um, did a piece for us on an orange juice ban um, of the uh, basically the queer population of Florida. And then subsequently, like um, across the United States, banned orange juice after the homophobic comments of the Tropicana spokesman, Anita Bryant. And Mm. so, orange juice, right? It's like a component of the breakfast table. And so, the element, you know, the angle there isn't direct like 10 ways to make French toast, but it completely fit into this ethos of like the way that. We talk about food and the way that, like, you know, food and drinks, like, inform a cultural conversation in ways that you aren't necessarily explicitly aware of. Um, I just had the um, Miranda Popke, who did, like, an incredible job, uh, did a piece about why we care so much about Starbucks cups. Um <laughs> because people <laughs> flip out about Starbucks cups, right? Every time the yeah. design gets changed um, you know, there was that whole protest where everyone was like, write Trump on my cup um, or, you know, even during during like Ferguson, um, there was that whole like initiative Starbucks had where they were like our baristas will talk to you about race. And it's like, why are we making baristas who are already extremely busy dealing with, like, you know, why are they the people responsible for ushering us through this, like, this incredibly thorny conversation? Um, And she did a really good job uh, just kind of untangling the way that Starbucks cups can never really have one message because they mean something to so many different people. Like, they either mean, like, you're very, like, you know snobby or highfalutin maybe or like maybe someone else uses a starbucks cup and they're like oh that person is like super basic and they love mocha frappuccinos (laughs) and the lens of your context informs how you see that message so there's no way for there to be like a uniform message of these cups and nonetheless they're this new canvas that people are using for political means um so there's just a couple examples but i think um it really afforded me an opportunity to take the idea of food and like, and like, rather than focusing super inwards, um, because I don't know, I never went to culinary school. I don't, I know nothing about like the innards of how to like construct a recipe. Our incredibly excellent um, food editor Kat Kinsman often like, I'll be like, hey, can you make like Jello out of I don't know Red Bull, and she's like, not only can you, I have, and
1: here's a recipe. You know? um, well, it's it's interesting that you you mentioned that because when I was looking at Extra Crispy, which you know I had heard like rumblings of and, and seen you know on Twitter or something prior to you know this interview, but I really didn't do any like really deep reading or, or uh, research until you know I knew that you were coming on the show. Mm-hmm. Um, but it strikes me that it's interesting that Time Inc. is is releasing this website now after you know the ridiculous success that everybody saw from, you know, for example, the Tasty uh, vertical on Buzzfeed. Sure. Um, and you know, there's a few other examples of of like these food blogs that are just remarkably successful. But I'm just kind of curious how how you know Extra Crispy fits into the model of that. Well, so we're very different.
0: We do our own video work. Um, and we do have, like, some videos that are in the model of, like, a Tasty where they're hands and pans, you know? You just see, the, like, the hands floating above and they're constructing something. Ah, is that the um, name they have for them now? Hands and pans? I, I know. Yeah. The hands and pans. <laughs> insider breakfast lingo. There you go. <laughs>
2: um, I'm in the know now.
0: There you go. Um, I think – so timing, I know, is like, looking – was looking when they launched – Extra Crispy to kind of become more like have their own native digital brands as opposed to like, you know, having People Magazine and like Time, these like big storied um, legacy magazines. They also want to have like sort of like scrappier uh, websites. So Extra Crispy was sort of like, it's sort of like having a startup, but within the structure of a giant media company so we have like a lot of the agility and um and like ability to experiment that you would for a much smaller company but you have like the structural support of timing which is nice because it means like you don't have to worry where money is coming from or like where funding is um in terms of like the landscape I don't know. I mean, I say this with, like, deep affection, because I really like everyone I work with. I think we're, like, all weirdos. Like, none of us are. Like, we're all, like, wonderful weirdos invested in our own projects. So, like, the aesthetic is not, you know, PBS so much as it is Adult Swim. Um. So sometimes, like... <laughs> things spiral into, like, very niche, weird places, um, which is very fun to be a part of, um, but I think, I think instead of being, like, you know, a tasty or, or someplace like that, that's, like, a pretty instructional space, like, Mm -hmm. the idea is to harness that energy and, like, talk about, like, the, the, like, morning culture, um, aspect of it, um, and, like, the, the way that people, like, really interact with food and, and also, like, what they actually would like to know about food. I mean, we ran a, like this is a silly example, but like, we have this great staff writer named Maxine who did an explainer about like nipple bacon, like why sometimes <laughs> when you get a bacon it has a pig nipple on it. And she's like, yeah, what? like this is what happens. And it's like, I I had never thought about it, but then I was like, right, that that has to happen sometimes, you know?
1: Um, so. Yeah, there's, there's something special listening to a reporter talk about their own outlet, uh, you know, with their <laughs> own insider knowledge, something you don't really, you know, pick up otherwise.
2: How, also, <laughs> like hearing the way that you describe, <laughs> hearing the way that you describe some of the social mores around breakfast. I mean, you just, you've sparked some thoughts I've never had before about how weird a concept breakfast is in general. Oh, it's so weird, right? Like it seems—it's really
0: arbitrary, actually. Um, like it means like to break your fast, right? Yeah. So, so it doesn't have to be in the morning, or like have these. And also, having like specific foods about breakfast is a really Western American thing. Like that's not true for all these different. Um, we had like an essay who wrote a, a person who wrote an essay about she grew up and she's from Korea and they would have like leftover dinner food for breakfast. And it was of course a point of contention. Cause when you're a little kid, you're just like, no, give me the weird sugary waffle thing. <laughs> they're like, why this is dumb. Like you don't need to be eating dessert for your morning meal, but yeah, like breakfast is an odd concept. It's like, it gets very like stoner logic. If you think about it too hard, actually like all these like, <laughs> like meal rituals that you like, are like, but why do we even do that, man, you know?
2: Right, it's like, I'd like like to start my day off in a healthy way, so give me the cakes covered in sugar.
0: Yeah, yeah. (laughs) What? Who decided that that was a good idea? Or like, cereal (laughs) is really weird if you think about it too long. Like, why do we want like dehydrated flake things? But we're like, no, it's fine because now they're in milk. And is that a kind of soup? Like, it could be a kind of soup you know how about some iron shavings
2: on
1: top of that you know for for health what's the uh what's the cold cold tomato soup gaspacho Um, yes yeah it's kind of like that just without the tomato soup but um well so okay so we we see you know if you go to your twitter feed like you're doing a lot of ridiculous things that look like a lot of fun (laughs) like you, you guys went and like searched for like a dumpster with like you know, old fortune cookies that nobody used. Oh, um,
0: that was a personal project. That
1: was not Oh, bad. was it? Okay. <laughs> I thought that I thought that was for an article.
0: <laughs> oh uh, wow. I should actually write an article. No, that was actually just like a personal quest I had in downtown Los Angeles because I saw like a weird thing on the internet about it. And then a friend a group of my friends like directed me to the dump the dumpster of uh, rejected fortune cookies in downtown LA. See, you can that,
1: that needs to be something you write about uh, <laughs> but i mean I, I guess my question is like how are you able to balance like the kind of research that you have to do and you know actually writing these things um these articles because i mean you already have explained so many like weird like things that you you need to <laughs> like if you're gonna write about nipple bacon you have to go and find nipple bacon
0: yeah it's true um i mean luckily for me you know i'm i am function as an editor in, like, a sort of true way Um, in the way that, like, every place the word editor could mean either someone who chases down contracts or someone who just, like, pumps out 10 articles a day. Like, I, I really do get to, like, commission things and edit them. So a lot of the times it's, like, extremely fun to just be, like, I have this weird idea and I know a writer who I can, like, have chase down this, like, weird thing and see if it's good and then they can write about it (laughs) um so a lot of it is delegating which is the boring true thing but sometimes there are things that I like I have a personal passion project this is sort of a spoiler but not really um about uh, a friend of mine is getting married but she doesn't like cake so she's like why can't we just have a giant bagel as a cake and I was like yes why can't you so I've been working on. It's a shame trying... I can't
2: propose to her.
0: <laughs> <laughs> she is the best. Um, but uh, but like so, I've been working with like a person who knows how to make bagels to see like if we can make like a really large bagel with like smaller concentric bagels, like in as like a tier, and then like frost it with cream cheese.
1: Will that um, bagel still be good for like the one and five year anniversary though?
0: Uh will it even be good the first time? <laughs> I don't know.
1: How like, long will it's... that cream cheese hold
2: out?
0: Yeah, I don't know if it would be extremely gross but like super impressive looking. Um <laughs> I don't know. But but it's like always just like a balance of like trying to you know, like cause I have to a lot like time for actual responsibilities like editing and writing versus maybe sometimes i get to like take a couple hours and i'm like okay here's the thing we're gonna put everything bagel seasoning on absolutely everything around us and see if like it still tastes good um (laughs) which it does like it absolutely does i highly recommend it
1: then you just have to walk around with toothpicks for the rest of your life
0: yeah um, that's the drawback of it it's worth it it's like such a yeah oh
1: everything (laughs) bagel
0: seasoning tastes great on everything i don't know why no one has like It should be like just an at home spice, is my opinion.
2: So I know, do you think it's called everything because it tastes good on everything or because it's made of everything? See, before
0: I had tried this, I would have said the latter, but now I think it's the former. Like it
2: tastes good on everything. Did they just know? They just do. This is is the
1: stoner logic that you were talking about.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Well, there is actually a connecting thread uh, in the discussion we were just having. I wanted to talk a little bit about how your voice has developed as you've moved from place to place. Um, Mm -hmm. Because having read a little bit of Home, it's I feel like the voice difference is distinct between that and the things you write for Eater and even some of the criticism you've written on. Uh, earlier on in your career, so can you talk a little bit about the development of your voice and how you sort of switch gears from writing for a breakfast website versus writing about uh, your travels through the South, for instance?
0: Sure. Um, I think um, I th- I think I've always been trying to do um, the way that I've structured my career, perhaps like foolishly, is that I've always been working on something longer and slower beneath the service while, like, paying my bills, doing something very quick, like, writing for the internet, writing for a tabloid, like, being invested in, like, doing, you know, the kind of things where, like, you send in your assignment, and, like, it will be published probably within that month, versus the book, which, like, took me about two years, um, or, yeah, I, about it was like two and a half years from it being sold to it being published. So the metabolism of it was much slower. Um, I think often starting out, like when you're writing and you're pitching and you're writing for the internet, your voice is like writing for other, like if you, you have like a little bit of your inherent voice writing, I think no matter what you do, but like the outlet really determines what your voice is. Right. So you wouldn't write the same piece in the same style for the New York Times and Entertainment Weekly. Or, you know, like, if someone asks you to, like, recap a television show, that's different than, you know, them asking you to go report on, like, a city council meeting. Um, So I pretty early on, just out of necessity, just out of, like, hustling really hard to try and feed myself, I, like, had to be adept at, like learning how to imitate these different house styles as best I could, or at least like fitting my voice into these like different containers. Mm. Um, whereas the book, I really got to kind of like be as much like, there was no template and no container except for like what I wanted to do, which was a little bit terrifying, honestly. Um, but I had an extremely good editor, um, Matt Weiland at Norton, who is a prince, um, who's a prince who, like, knows exactly, like, when to be, like, okay, but just write, like, that, maybe, like, right there, like, you need, like, three more pages, or, like, you should cut these 20 pages, and you're like, uh, you're right. Um, but I think it was helpful for me, It's it's helpful for me to always have something that's, Going on in the background that sort of anchors me that i can sort of sit down and write just like in the way that i would want to describe something to an old friend um mm. or like a new friend i was sort of trying to impress you know um <laughs> versus like the day-to-day trying to like be you know the day when i was at the daily news a lot of the things i wrote were like Um, I would cover, like, award shows and stuff, and we would do a lot of, like, Kim Kardashian goes outside, which is all, like, you know, useful in its own right, and it was incredibly useful to learn how to, like, work that quickly and sort of rephrase things as I went. But it was also, like, such a relief to be able to go back to this project where I was like, no no one, like, is going to see this for a while, so I can just sort of make this, like, shape it kind of on a slower level and not, and I think also crucially when you're writing for the internet you're always shaped immediately by the feedback that you get, right? Mm. You put it on Twitter you like get comments and like people will let you know right away if you like it or don't like it. So when you have like a longer project, it exists in this kind of void where you have no idea if anyone would like it or not like it and that's sort of terrifying but also like really freeing Mm. Um, yeah
2: (laughs) Well, in the in the book, you talk. Uh, the first chapter is about Eudora Welty and how gardening for her was sort of a grounding experience, and you can read that into her writing, in the way that she talks about relationships and the way that she describes places. Um, and it, what you, something you just said, the metabolism of longer pieces made me think about that in relation to you. Is there something you come back to? Uh, and maybe it's breakfast, maybe it's writing about food that helps ground your writing process from gig to gig as you metabolize these longer pieces, as you write shorter things for the internet?
0: Um, I think that the thing that I've always been really deeply interested in and is sort of this like amorphous thing is writing about place and like why people live where they live and what makes a place distinct from other places, not just geographically, but culturally. Um, and so I think a lot of the writing that I've done that I care about is about talking about the, the way that, um, I was, I was like, talk about the, the way that a place is, is a mutually agreed upon thing, not just because that's how it is in physical space, but that's how it is in our collective imaginations, right? Mm -hmm. Um, so we were just talking about New York and the way it is in our collective imaginations. And in some people's imaginations, it's like, you know, this great, like big apple and like full of glamor. And to people who live here, you're like, this is a rat palace full of (laughs) terrors and traps. And like both of them are equally true. Neither of them are false. The collections of our lived experience is what makes up the fabric of a place. Um, and I think, you know, even when I talk about something as like as like silly as like or, you know, like I did a piece like a long time ago about like monster truck rallies um, and, and like monster truck rallies are it's always like about examining the way that things are and like physical space as you perceive them versus how other people perceive them, because there's just it's like this um, it's always like your animal brain like hitting up against like the limits of your human body because there's no way you can tell what other people know about these things and the only way you can do it is is to surmise by like collecting all the information you can and like synthesizing it in this really specific way so um though I am like definitely no Eudora Welty um I feel like we have similar impulses in that coming back to like place and like maybe you know she always came back to one specific place and for me too I, I tend to like gravitate towards where I grew up because I just like never really figured out the place that I grew up but I like keep coming at it from different angles through the way that different people talk about it to see if I can maybe figure it out.
1: Sorry to interrupt this week's episode with Margaret Eby. Her book, South Towards Home, is available wherever books are sold. Uh, we wanted to let you know about My Lit Box, which is a monthly book subscription box that celebrates diversity in literature by delivering a book written by an author of color to your house once a month. Uh, If you pay for the premium model, you get one or two quality book-related items that show up along with the book. Uh, It's a really cool experience. These are books that you're going to be reading anyway, so you might as well just get them delivered once a month without you even paying attention. And the best news, if you're a fan of this podcast, you can get 10% off your first box by using the code WWDW upon checkout. Find out more at mylitbox.com. Now let's get back to the show. What, what do you mean? You you keep coming back to to like where you grew up and how? Um, you know I, I've been fascinated forever with the book. Uh, you can't go home again, where? Mm-hmm. I, God, I always screw. It's Tobias Wolf, right? Uh, um, Thomas Wolf. Thomas Wolff. <laughs> See that that's the mistake I always make. <laughs> no. I always screw it up. Who's separate uh, from
0: Tom Wolf? Yes, of, of uh, white Suits fame. No, it's like
1: a. <laughs> uh, Well, I mean, the the whole idea of the book, and I've I've talked about it on the podcast before, is that, you know, it's fiction, but this guy writes about, you know, the town he grew up in, and then he goes back, and he's ostracized. Um, So that's not what you meant, is it? It's a little bit, like,
0: I mean, I don't feel ostracized from the place that I grew up, but, like, in the way that you can't go home again, because the place that you're talking about, like, you, of course, can go back to your hometown again, but you can't ever go back to the original setting and the original feelings you had at that home because like you you can't return to time like circumstances um it it is a little bit about that and like i think a lot of these like um the people like especially writing in my book they wrote about the south but almost none of them like felt like they were a part of it at the time even though now retrospectively all of those people are deeply like coded as Southern, like Faulkner and, and wealthy and maybe a little bit less um, someone in the case of like Richard Wright, who had to like, actually like flee the South in order to get any work done because of how like brutal it was. Um, but I think, you know, none of, I think none of these writers would have thought of themselves as natural Southerners, which is funny because like, now, absolutely, you would think of, like, Flattery O'Connor when you think about the South. Um, and it's because I think it's hard to feel like a part of a place at the time that you're there. Um, and almost it's easier to write about a place when you're not living there um, or if you're apart from it or you think of yourself as an outsider to it in some way.
1: Hmm. That's interesting. Um, because you, you're you in Brooklyn right now, right?
0: Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. In my I home.
1: mean, I mean, it just sounds like you're, it's funny that you say that it's it's easier to write about or talk about a place when you're not there because, I mean, you've just done such like a masterful job of talking about Brooklyn. Um, and I know that, you know, one thing doesn't disqualify the other, but, uh, or about New York anyway,
0: but. Uh, well, thank you. I will take, I'll take the compliment, but I feel like it's also just like New York, I don't, I don't know. New York Seals is like one of those slippery places to write about because even if you, like you're the New York you describe is never going to be everyone's New York and if it's not there in New York sometimes you get criticized for it if that makes sense?
2: <laughs> yeah. Criticized for describing New York never.
0: Never. 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 That never happens.
2: <laughs> if you live here you can talk about how terrible it is but if anybody else says it then that's Biden's like, words.
0: Hey, yeah. step off. Go back to Oakland. Like enjoy your <laughs> Jersey. To- yeah, enjoy your avocados that are cheap. You yeah, know, have like... your
2: pizza with your fork and your knife, and get out of my lawn. <laughs> yeah.
0: yeah, it's amazing, like how how like defensive people get. Of I mean, it's the whole classic thing where like, um, do you remember in the in the like debates when Ted Cruz, uh, I forget what he said. It was like some he's just like New York values, and instantly everyone was like, "All right, buddy, like get out of here." Like the Daily News is like, yeah, was, like flipping him off it was like a glorious (laughs) glorious thing to behold
2: new that brings new yorkers together like criticism of new york
0: (laughs) it's true it is actually true it's like kind of the currency of living here i tried i tried to explain this to someone on the west coast because of a friend of mine who who was always telling her about like killing rats in his apartment and like horrors and she was like you should just move i was like you don't understand like this is our way of communicating like if he wanted to move he could move but this like <laughs> the, the like fabric of our being is complaint you know like
2: yeah. mutual <laughs> complaints well so you talk about uh the, the place that you're from uh, or at least the place that you grew up which is alabama what how would you describe alabama in the same terms that you describe New York what is inseparable from where you grew up
0: so for me i i growing up um, in alabama like it's one of those things that i didn't realize that i mean like everything growing up you don't realize that it's an unusual thing or something that maybe not everyone has experienced until you like remove yourself from that setting so for me You know, I moved to New York for college. And then when I would tell people where I was from, they were just they were like slack jawed, like more so than anyone who was like, oh, I moved here from Venezuela. They're like, oh, I hear it's nice there. I was like from Alabama. They're like, how? How did you get here? I was like, (laughs) airplane, (laughs) normal ways, Um, because there's so many. I feel like uh, you to some extent, I think when I was growing up, I was aware of the assumptions of like. What it's like to live and grow up in the South, but you don't really face the weight of those until you leave, and kind of people expect you to come in on a tractor or um, or be like horribly racist to them or, or something. Um, and and you know, it, it, the South is like a fraught fraught place, and there are a lot of things that are truly like. Reprehensible about its political history and like continue to be. Um, there's the there's kind of a thing that I have always had trouble like truly describing is the way the weight of that kind of past, um, like particularly the civil rights movement and the way that people think about it as like never it you know it's not over and like has never been um, in the way that I think when I moved up here, people were like, Oh, that was, that was a bad time for us, but it's over. Like in Birmingham uh, growing up, like you knew people whose parents were part of the children's March. Right. Um, And probably you knew people whose parents were like part of, if not like exactly the clan, certainly like something that, like really vigorously opposed the civil rights movement and both of those people, like everyone like still existed with all this mixing together um, all the time. And And even like I grew up in Alabama and neither of my parents are from Alabama. I remember just like time and again, trying to come like to terms with this sort of like crushing guilt weight of history, which is, you know, to some extent, just like white guilt, but to other extent, you like really feel implicated in a way that maybe you would, I mean, and I don't know because I've only had the experience I did, but like maybe if you're in Boston, even though Boston also has like a fair amount of its own past to contend with, maybe you wouldn't, you wouldn't have had the same thing to deal with because for example, you wouldn't pass the park every day where there were like fire hoses and police dogs mowing down, like, little black children. <laughs> um, it's, it's, like, a different... It's, like, a feeling um, that's... It's a, it's a difficult one to, like, communicate. Because, like, you you want to be like, yes, bad things. But also, there are good things. <laughs> like, people make good food. I don't know. People are nice to me. Um, well, we, we,
1: had, we had a similar conversation with Evan Ratliff uh, of the long-form podcast and Atavist... Where he basically said that, like the rumors, you know, at his Thanksgiving table, were that he had like a grandfather who was in the KKK, uh, and he's from Georgia, I believe. Um, okay. And I mean, it's it's he said it was just like part of the fabric of the life that he'd always grown up in, and uh, you know, it's it's the kind of thing where it's like you know, his his family he always looked at as, as great people, but you know, you have to contend with the fact that like very recently, like they may not have been. Um, And it's just like kind of hard to justify like you know either side of that argument
0: yeah Um, so yeah it's a difficult thing and i think it's also um to some to some extent it's just like an easy thing right it's not easy but it's like this not a new conundrum of like having to deal with the complications of humans who, you know, might be like extremely nice to you and like sit at the same dinner table with you, but might be part of some really outrageously like upsetting and like violent incidents um, in like the past, for example, or like just disagree with you totally politically or, you know, um, reconciling those things, yeah, is, um, I guess it's just like an ongoing process because it's easier just to be like the racists are over there, we don't have to worry about them. <laughs> um, but obviously current political events indicate that no such luck. They are everywhere. <laughs> like, and also it's not even useful to categorize it like as a kind of person. It's like a kind of action that, like, people are capable of. So, mm. um, so that was well, a very long answer. <laughs> No, I think
2: it's a good one as as something that you come back to that helps guide the process that you go through when you write about things. I think that's uh, that's a it's hard to describe. In the way that it affects your process, I'm sure, because yours, it sounds like you're still working through it and what it means.
0: Right, I think so. And I think it was useful. It's useful to confront and i think it's important to confront and like recognize but it's um but it's yeah it's a difficult it's a difficult thing to be a part of the fabric of a place that like anchors uh you but i guess all places are difficult like there's no like one place that's just like completely free of any like any complication or bad feeling or having to deal with like complicated Um, poisonous parts. Um, The great writer, Diane McWhorter, actually wrote this like incredible um, long history of of Birmingham civil rights. And she is from around the same place that I grew up. And her her piece, which was like this meticulously researched book all about the civil rights movement, um, ended up implicating a lot of people who, she like went to my same high school Um, and I remember it being like a huge social deal when she dropped this book, which I, if I recall correctly, won several really big prizes. It's a just like really well done book, but like people were not pleased with her about like airing a lot of dirty laundry. Um, like specifically there were like some country club members who she had like, (laughs) she like tied to be like opposing the civil rights movement, um. And it it's like that that stuff is very near the surface still. And mm-hmm. I think she she no longer she is working on another book. But I believe she lives in Boston now, or or teaches at Harvard. But for I remember like when I heard about that, I was like, oh right, like this is this is what it will be like to like try and write about this place. Like it will it will like not always go <laughs> very well if you want to like speak truthfully about it.
1: Well you you I mean you mentioned that like it's nice to like confront some of these issues in your writing and you actually just recently published a piece uh called tacky in Midnight Breakfast. Which Mm -hmm. I mean you're you're in a different way. You were kind of confronting like some of the culture that you grew up in. Um can you talk about it for a little bit?
0: Sure. Uh yeah tacky um so, right, Taki was about this culture in a different way, and it was more of like the culture of the way that people, and specifically women, are supposed to present themselves. Um, like, uh, there's, and the ways in which there are rules of behavior that are like unwritten. Um, and basically, like, if you break, Like, tacky is a word that is used to, like, police people who break those rules. So, um, you know, like, acting tacky or, like, acting ugly um, could mean, like, you unwittingly, like, forgot to bring, like, the shrimp cocktail or something to the party and everyone was expecting you to bring the shrimp cocktail but like no one like actually explicitly told you to do that so or it's you know when I'm talking about it a lot of it um is is about um like the way people dress um and specifically I am someone who likes things that are like flashy and loud and like generally like late Elvis you know like (laughs) like very very like bad taste like huge necklaces and huge earrings and like weird crowns and like feathers. Like I love new Orleans. Like I love going, I love very literal things. Like I have a skirt with like fried eggs printed on it. It's just like very on the nose for someone who works as like a breakfast website and I (laughs) wear it all the time. Um, and I think the, the essay, what I was trying to get at is the way that, um, we discourage certain modes of dress and certain behaviors, especially, um, especially, like, for women who don't fit in one really specific model, which is thin, like, white, like, blonde, um, willowy. I don't know. There's there's just, like, the, the type that's on every Neutrogena commercial, basically. Um, and though I, like, am, am very privileged in many respects, I am, like, white and cis and straight, I am, like, have always been... Of a larger size than that model, in which case you are super, like, super encouraged to wear like a wall of like black fabric and not stick out and like hope that eventually you can eat enough cottage cheese to like become someone willowy enough to wear spaghetti straps, Um, which is something I think I thought I would eventually accomplish a lot in my 20s and then realize that like it is foolish not to just wear things you like to wear at all times. Um, so in conclusion, I'm like, a, like a terror to see around the office. We often have like um, the food editor, Kat and I sometimes have like theme days, and we're like tiki and we wear like tiki dresses um, because I'm also lucky enough to work in an office where they don't mind if I wear a ridiculous garb. Um, so that's, a, that's a lot what tacky was about.
2: Well, it sounds like it's it's a a thread in the same larger yarn. Are yarns made of threads or are yarns just really big threads themselves? I don't know. Uh, But it sounds like it's, it's in that same vein where it's something, is that something that was sort of illuminated to you when you moved to a place like New York where people wear whatever they want and aren't chastised for standing out?
0: Sort of, but New York does chastise you in different ways. I mean, like no one's—I mean, sure, not New York proper. Like on the subway, no one cares. But I think if you run in certain social circles in New York, it's like clear which modes of dress and behaviors are favored. Um, You know, it—it's not—it's never like explicit. It—it is something that like moving to New York helps, because I think there's like a community so many weirdos from small towns moved to New York that there's like an implicit, there's an implicit support club there always. Yeah. Um, So you can wear like whatever you want and someone will be like, fantastic. I also have like an array of like tiki wear and you're like, great, of course you did. <laughs> like New York is wonderful. But I think a lot of it just had to do with like, time and like making like to myself explicit the things that were always implicit in the way that I was like well why am I feeling like I can't wear this and I'm like because of the like following ideas that are propagated about like women (laughs) and and it was just like a slow kind of process of of like discovering perhaps things that were like maybe obvious to other people um but i was just like right okay that's why i feel this way and then once you like f- figure out that like you know maybe you, you go to like a like a book reading or a book party and everyone there is wearing black or like chic florals or like cold shoulder tops and you and and maybe a degree of that is like gaining some confidence in my work and like as well as in myself and you know turning like being in my 30s, which are generally a time of more peace and prosperity. Let's hope. Um, <laughs> but I do think some of that was just being like, you know, what if I go to the like party and I'm wearing this like insane flounce outfit and I like do it with like and don't comment on it at all? No one's gonna care, and they are gonna think it's awesome. As opposed to like my insecurity voice being like, they'll think you're like some rube who is like airlifted here from the middle of like nowhere. Um, so maybe they are part of the same thing, <laughs> actually.
1: <laughs> Man, I'm learning. I'm uh, learning so much right now about just like so many fashion mistakes that I've made in the past. But but no, also...
0: <laughs> there's no such thing as a fashion mistake. This is like this is the whole thing. Like there's yeah. no way to mistake your fashion. Like. Do you, that, that, I feel like, have you, have either of you read, um, Carl Wilson's book about Celine Dion?
2: No. Oh. I, I have not.
0: It is incredible. Um, it's, it's like the, one of the 33 and a third books. Um, okay. and the subtitle is like a journey to the end of taste.
1: <laughs> That's a great <laughs> name.
0: It's fantastic. And it's just about, it's like him setting out to discover why he hates Celine Dion Um, He was just like I just really don't like her and it's actually just an exploration of taste and like what good and bad taste means Um, but but right like once you figure out that it's all completely subjective and meaningless and no one can punish you for wearing all leopard print every day if you want then like (laughs) do the thing that makes you happy I don't know
1: yeah. Well, I mean, I, 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 I misspoke, but the, you know, kind of what I meant is just like uh, you can wear the same outfit, and uh, you know, I'm from New Hampshire, so I can wear the same outfit in New York, and then the same thing in New Hampshire. And and you're right, you know, it will be suitable for one place and not the other. Um, and I mean, I do it anyway because I just don't care what people think. But but you know, I will get comments, and you know, I'll get looks if I wear like something a little flashier in New Hampshire. You know, I'm expected to be like uh, you know polo and Timberland and that kind of thing. Um right. And I mean, it, it kind of like does strike a lot of the same chords uh, that you seemed to write about in in tacky. Um, so, um, so thank you for writing that because it, it yeah <laughs> it, it helped me put it into a, like a little bit of perspective. Yeah, um,
0: I mean, I mean, I'm here to encourage. I'm here to enable everyone to like just just be their tackiest selves. It would be better if people could just like all wear like insane velour jumpsuits and like capes and
2: whatever. Where, where, I took it, what are
1: those big blanket pajama things? <laughs> Snuggies. Snuggies. Yeah. yeah,
2: yeah, for sure. Yeah. I took it to mean... I took it a little differently just because I feel like as, as a fan of things that have been somewhat ostracized at different points and are now part of the greater popular culture like mm-hmm. Star Trek and Star Wars and video games and I've worn glasses forever and now they're cool. Who would have thought? Totally. Um, I took it, you know, and I don't know if you wrote it this way, to be... Uh, sort of an advocation, if that's even a word, for passion. Because I took your your passion for wearing the things that you actually care about to be the takeaway for me, because it was such a struggle against insecurity, and I'm sure every, everyone goes through the same thing in their 20s, but like finding the inner strength to just dive headfirst into the things that you care about, the things that give you joy, even if you're being made fun of for it, or someone's telling you it's stupid or dumb... To partake in like video games was for the longest time.
0: Yeah, I mean, certainly that's like, that's a big part of it too. Um, because I think also like uh, the old like narratives of you will say something that you like something and someone will be like, that's stupid. And you're like, oh no. Like that, that <laughs> so rarely happens, right? Like no one's gonna like, be, very few people are just like, well, you liking this is dumb. They'll, like, code it in a different way. And you and therefore you, like, internalize it in a way that you wouldn't if someone was just like, I think video games are dumb. And you're like, well, I think they're awesome and you're dumb and I'm leaving, you know?
2: Um, <laughs> I wasn't that kind of kid. I was. They were like, video games aren't cool. And I was like, well, I want to be cool. But... <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Uh, I don't play any video games. Oh. <laughs>
0: no, I don't like them anymore. Um, no, I think it, it is, like, about, about like, being authentic to yourself whatever that means but i think you know that's such that feels like such a trite i feel like i'm always discovering like these like very trite like normal things like i discovered whole milk last year like i'm just like always (laughs) columbusing like like I hadn't ever, I never drank milk. I never had milk my whole life. I thought it was gross. And then I had an iced coffee and I like reached for the wrong milk. And I was like, Oh my God, this tastes wonderful. And my friend was like, did you just discover whole
2: milk? <laughs> like, <laughs> Wait, wait, is that yeah. a real thing? Yes. Yes. Oh my God. Absolutely. It tastes stu- so much I'm stu- better.
1: Stu- I'm still stuck on the word Columbus I think that's amazing. Oh, um, I didn't
0: come up with that at all. <laughs>
1: no, I know. I love it. Uh, that's great well I mean I, I, I don't want to uh, jump on on like the the time train but I do want to be respectful of your time so um, you know this is typically the point in the show where we uh, kind of transition into uh, you know the one story that our guest has always kind of struggled to tell um, you know and longtime listeners of the show knows that or know that like this is oftentimes the most exciting piece of the whole show so um, <laughs> No, I mean, in in it, so, like, I just... for, for for good reason, you know. Yeah. It's
2: I don't know, man. I was I was willing to see where this whole whole milk thing is going. <laughs> you don't
0: yeah. want to hear about like how whole milk tastes, but no, I understand.
1: Well, I'm 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 lactose like... <laughs> I'm lactose intolerant, so I can't I, into... I can't do the milk uh, thing. Fair um, but I uh, I mean that said, you did you did tell us a couple of the stories that you wanted to to speak on, and and you know, I'm pretty stoked about them. So, um, <laughs> so I'll leave it to you.
0: Um, okay, so, right, I feel, I'm not sure how, like, to dramatically reveal, but I I do, (laughs) there's a story, um, it's, like, the kind of story that I, like, usually, like, drop, like, a line of at a cocktail party, if I want to sound, like, super interesting, um, but my, my, my mom, um, is from Ireland, she grew up in Ireland, um, with two sisters, and she would always, like, And, um, whenever I would go over to visit my grandparents, I was, I was like always, I never really put it together, but then one day I like kind of realized that every entertainment piece of entertainment they had in their house was related to nuns. Um, like we would always watch sister act. We'd watch the sound of music. We would watch like the flying (laughs) Nun. and my, my grandparents were very religious, like, which is not unusual. Um, for you know they're Irish catholic um and um and it, i like remember hearing this in like some capacity and like finally getting my mom to tell me about it because my grandmother had had been a nun um before she was my grandmother um and the story was that she was there were like not that many options um, for women in ireland Um, in the 50s if I, I, you know, if they didn't want to, like, directly get married. So she was, like, in training, basically, to be a novice through her 20s and 30s. And then she met my grandfather in her late 30s. Um, I believe, though, this, like, detail might not be totally correct because I need to, like, actually, like, do some digging in the family lore. But he, he was, like, In some way, like, she interacted with him in the convent. Like, he wasn't, like, religious in any... He wasn't, like, um, a clergyman, but his brother owned a farm or something. And so my my grandmother, like, a nun, (laughs) ran away with my grandfather to England and got married. And then they came... They um, had my mom when she was 40, and then two kids after that... um, and then moved back to the small town in Ireland that she had been a nun in to become, to work as a nurse, um, which was, um, and, and the, and I guess the complications of the story and why it's like difficult to talk about is, is the way that like the, the Catholic church had been so much a refuge for like the women of my family, even as it, um, hurt them. Like, I think very, very clearly did. Um, case in point that like when they moved back and my, my mom and her sisters went to the school that was run by the nuns that used to be the colleagues of my grandmother, they were like extremely harsh to her and her sisters and they were, they like basically punished them. Um, and like, I, I, my mom would tell stories of like, you know, wrapping knuckles with rosary beads and the kind of like, um, corporal like punishments that were still, um, allowed (laughs) at that time. And, and I think, um, so, so it's a story that I, I know that I should talk about at some point because it's this, like this very like deeply entrenched family lore. And I think it really like, changed the way, like, the relationship between the church and my family is one that's, like, very deep-seated and maybe not that uncommon in Ireland, but I also, like, wanted, you know, one of the things I always wanted to write about and haven't, like, really found a way in yet is, like, the way that my grandmother must have been this, like, incredibly independent woman to, like, get out of the, like, you know, she had my mom in 1954, so imagining, doing that in 1954 Ireland and like leaving the like shelter of this institution and then coming back to like sort of face it every day um, is something that I have been wanting to write about for a while.
1: So is there uh, like a specific reason why you haven't yet or is it just kind of like, you know, it's in you but you're not ready yet?
0: Um, Every time I try, it just like doesn't seem right. Um, yeah, I don't, it's, 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 it's a, it feels like very big thing. And it also, I don't know, it, whenever you bring like religion into something, it gets really messy all of like very quickly. Right. And in a weird way, that story is also about a place and mm-hmm. that place is like, like 1950s Athlone, Ireland, which is like the depressing joy division part of Ireland, um, and it feels like something that I haven't quite like got enough of a handle on um, to be able to tell it well enough.
1: It's so funny to me that you say that, that religion is the reason that uh, it, it would make things sticky because for me and for a lot of the experience of the writers that we've had on the show in the past, it's usually family that gives that kind of pause.
0: Uh, yeah, no, it's both. I think yeah. it's <laughs> implicit. Yeah. Um, I think writing when you write about yourself, like when I write about myself in this book, it's not really like it's me but it's like me in the way like it's it's at a remove and like having and writing something like that where you're like really talking about your family and your roots and your like deepest held beliefs that's a different kind of you that I'm not that used to writing about and it feels very um, hard and <laughs> scary yeah
2: also well, you're You're taking on the role of speaking either through or about your grandparents in a way that you might not have known them too, right? That's what I would. That would be my my hesitation to try and write a story about my grandparents. Um, I can understand why that would be a daunting task in any sense of trying to tackle. Right.
0: And I feel like I would make so many assumptions that are not right. And unfortunately, neither of them are around for me to actually talk to them about it. Mm-hmm. So everything is now like filtered through the assumptions of other family members. Um, and mm-hmm. also, it's the kind of thing where like it's a good gossip item within the family. But it in, in the same way that like New Yorkers get angry <laughs> if you like talk about New York in any way that isn't like beautiful, that... Um, you know, it's, it's obviously a sensitive thing when you're like talking about something that is like something that it's fine to tell people in person, but maybe not to like write about to the world um, and have like passed <laughs> around and read by a lot of strangers.
2: I imagine it would also be difficult not to lionize uh, your grandmother for what is maybe the boldest move in Irish Catholic history to run away from the convent and then to go back to that same town with the man you ran away with Yeah,
0: I mean it seems super badass, but also
2: it's so badass.
0: But yeah, it's hard to but also, you know, she was a person and I knew her and she was a like lovely grandmother. I didn't she died when I was 13. Um but like mm. right, it's I think trying to figure out who someone is like through stories of them and particularly through those stories of their like biggest moves is a weird way of getting to know someone. Like, I don't think you like the fabric of their everyday life is more important than not more important, but like as relevant as like the biggest decision they ever made,
2: you know? That has to be the hardest part about writing historical things though right because you can only ever tell the story at a distance and you only have as much as the time allows you you know as the records of that time allow so especially if your if your grandmother wasn't uh you know a political or person who took daily notes about what she did and where she went and who she met with it's it's very different right. it's got to be very difficult to try and reconstruct her life right you know?
0: and even if she did take daily notes like she only took the notes of like the things that she wanted to record or if mm. she you know she didn't but like but even that kind of like specific diary keeping is only useful to a certain extent because like you probably have a lot of questions that aren't things that you would like write down or any historical figure would write down. You know,
1: I, I'm going to say something that I haven't like you know said to any of our guests in the past, but uh, for as awesome as a story as that is, I think that, you know, it might even be better if you were able to do like a fictionalized version of it um, just because you could add all of these layers that, you know, you really never have a way of actually knowing.
0: Yeah. That's true. It's easy. I feel like the trap of nonfiction and like what's great about it too is like all you can work with is what you have but it also feels like that almost is like lots of people do super interesting things with no information you know like lots of people can just write about an absence of information as much as it exists. Um, Like I don't know Jeff Dyer not that I'm anything close to Jeff Dyer but you know what I mean like Jeff Dyer does a great job of that or even like you know you think Jason Diamond Jason for Diamond for example writing a great book about failure <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah which is actually a success which is you know
2: paradoxical yeah, <laughs> <course>. yeah maybe <laughs> um
0: yeah um there are a lot of there are, you know and but also it feels like fiction would remove a lot of the problems um including not deal not like like going to like group therapy with my family constantly in order to like actually, (laughs) but then it feels like the point of it would probably to be facing down those things and talking about those honestly. Um, um, Plus I like have not written any good ever. I think the last attempt I made was maybe in high school and it was quite bad. It was like a time traveler in it. um, (laughs) It was, like, a robot, but, like, maybe also a horse. I forget. It was not a success.
1: Well, yeah. I might <laughs> read that. Just on that I, log I, I like time travel quite a bit. Um, Margaret, where where can our listeners find you online?
0: So um, you can find me at Extra Crispy, where I edit, or on Twitter, where I post weird things about fortune cookie dumpsters.
1: Um. <laughs> Oh, man. Uh, And, you know, your book, South Toward Home, is available wherever books are sold?
0: It is indeed. It's in paperback now.
1: Oh, cool. Uh, All right. Well, thank you so much for joining us. This was a lot of fun.
0: Yeah. Thank you both. Um, I really appreciate it.
1: So that was Margaret Eby. Uh, You can find her online at margaretEby.com. That's E B Y. It's the coolest last name I've ever heard. Uh, she is awesome so thank you so much to Margaret uh, thank you to Jason Diamond and Will Scarlett as well both friends of the show uh, who you know really helped us out in getting Margaret on board uh, I've been reading her for years so it was really exciting to actually sit down and have a conversation with her um, you can find Writers Who Don't Write at www.podcast.com um, and this week I want to let you know about our Instagram account which is www.pod uh, you should check it out we have book uh, announcements cool book images book recommendations book deals you know book everything uh, every day we post at least one new picture it's kind of a new thing that i started doing a few weeks ago because i got a new camera um and it is awesome uh, you should check out
2: jeff's hashtag game it's on point
1: it is so good uh, but for real we only have like 60 followers and we could use your help um, <laughs> But, uh, again, you can find us at www.podcast.com. Uh, we want to thank my Litbox this week for making this show possible. Don't forget 10% off your first box using www upon checkout. Uh, and I want to thank bensound.com, uh, a creative commons music outlet, uh, for providing the music, um, for my Litbox box in the middle of the show. Uh, he has a ton of other great stuff, uh, great songs on his website that you should check out. Um, I also want to thank Ryan, Dan of Holland patent public library. Who's been a show, a friend of the show from day one. Uh, he did the music at the top and the bottom of the show, uh, and every other show as well. And you can find his SoundCloud page at HP public library. Uh, he has an awesome CD and he's working on a new one right now. Uh, so you guys should all definitely have at it, uh, and see you in two weeks.